I'm Arthur. And I'm Susan. This is the Parent Talk Podcast. Managing the challenges of daily parenting. Thanks to our founding sponsor, Naturepedic, the nation's most trusted source of organic and healthy sleep products for your children. You can visit them at naturepedic.com. That's naturepedic.com. Welcome back to Parent Talk. We're excited to welcome to our podcast, the host of a podcast we recently were honored to be guests on, The Pediatrician Next Door, featuring Dr. Uh, Wendy Hunter. We're excited to be talking about the mind and the toddler today. But before we get started, Dr. Wendy, would you like to introduce yourself to our uh, listeners? Hi, guys. I Yes, I am Dr. Wendy Hunter, and I am a practicing pediatrician in La Jolla, California. And indeed, I started a podcast called The Pediatrician Next Door. And I like to answer the questions that parents uh, forgot to ask you when you're in the clinic. Wonderful. So we're going to cover a lot of ground today. And again, the topic of conversation is how toddlers think. I think it's going to be an intriguing topic. So we'll start off with this first question. Is a toddler's thinking generalizable? That is what we believe they think, what we know about how they think, and what science has to tell us. And Dr. Wendy, I think we'll turn to you for the first comments since you've given us a lot of thought. I love this topic because it puts the power of managing your child's behavior in the parent's hands. It's not me dictating, you need to do this, you need to do that. But when you understand how the toddler sees the world, you can assess everything they do through that lens. So this is the concept I came up with. And I know you guys are going to love this because you talk about things like this all the time on your show. But that is if the parent looks at the world the way their toddler looks at it, it's a big shift, but it really helps you to understand why they're doing the crazy, weird things that those toddlers do. And what sort of things make a toddler's mind a little different than our minds? I mean, we're so used to the way we think, we assume that everyone must think the way we do. Yeah, you're never going to remember back when you thought this way. And it's really frustrating to watch your toddler stop and look at every water fountain because you don't know why they're doing it. But yes, kids have fewer inhibitory neurotransmitters in their brain, so they can't shut down their impulses or even filter out information. They see absolutely everything. It's all the things that you ignore when you walk down the street. You don't see all the weird little shadows. You don't see the fine colors on a leaf, but they do because it's new. If you think about when you have traveled to a new culture, everything's brand new and you're just looking at everything and distracted constantly. And that's how the toddler feels all the time. They also have a less developed frontal lobe, so they can't organize their time very well. They don't plan ahead the way we do. They also do not have the language that you have. They cannot say all the words to describe the things they want that you can. And then there's other little things like you may want something, but they don't feel a want. They feel it like a desperate need for something. They're not just like, hmm, it'd be nice to have some water. They're like, I need water right now. So big differences. And I guess the other one is the concept of mind. This is a really big one. And we're going to get to all of this in depth, I think. But the concept of mind is that you understand that you have one perspective and another human sees things differently than you do. And that is a concept that we have to learn. Toddlers don't just know off the bat that you see things differently than they do. They think you see the exact same thing they do. You know, I'd like to pick up on something you said, which I don't think most of us appreciate about how adults think, and that is how central to our brain's function inhibition is. There's, you know, thousands of things pinging our brain all the time, and a successful brain picks the one that counts. Mm -hmm. You can't pick the one that counts without ignoring all the rest. 
And so a big piece of mature brain function is completely ignoring well over 99% of the incoming information. Our mind is shutting down its ability to pierce our consciousness, our awareness. But that's so interesting that you observe that in a toddler's brain, this inhibitory function isn't fully developed. And it does make sense because until you know what's not important, you can't shut it out. You don't want to, at one year old, shut out 90% of the incoming because which of the 10% incoming is important. And of course, that varies from culture to culture. What's important here may not be important there in this land versus that land. It's very much a learned thing over years to find out what doesn't matter and what does. That's exactly right. And you point out that there's a functional importance to this is that as an adult, you can't even get through your day if you have to look at everything. And a child, they can't learn what they need to learn to become an adult if they're ignoring stuff. It's uh, for another conversation, but the whole concept of attention, which is such a big thing in schools these days, mm-hmm. one of the key things that defines whether you have good abilities to pay attention is whether you can ignore everything except the one thing you have to attend to. And a toddler's attention is very different. They need to attend to everything so they can measure and learn what counts and what doesn't. And to do that, they really have to look at everything. Yeah, that's why you can't sit a three-year-old down in a chair all day long in school. That's asking something that they're not physically, cognitively capable of doing yet. No, I was interested, you talked about the concept of mind. I always think of it as theory of mind, but it's exactly the same thing. Being able to take another person's point of view, being able to see another point of view. And I think that when parents can understand that this is really a true psychological dynamic, then they can understand why a two-year-old can't share. Why saying to a two-year-old, can't you see that your friend is upset, you know, that they didn't get this toy? Well, no, they really can't because they can only see it from their perspective. And as you said, it's not just that they want to do something. They feel it as this absolutely overwhelming need to be done right now. And that's where the language that parents can use with a child makes all the difference because you can't just allow a child to be uncivilized in the sense that they take things from everybody and they're whacking kids on the head. But on the other hand, if you think that the idea of discipline is punishing them for something that they have no control over, then you're really going to go down a cycle of uh, ending up in a big mess with the child, that the child is not going to be able to learn how to manage and adjust their behavior. Yeah, your two-year-old is not being mean on purpose when they're not sharing. They just haven't learned how yet. We contrast uh, the toddler to the adult mind, but there's also a big difference between the toddler's mind and a newborn's mind. And for me, the big difference is a newborn has no self. They don't have a conscious awareness of them being different than their mother. You know, when a baby's first born, you talk about being the fourth trimester and they're still attached like they were before birth in some ways for that first few months after birth. And so the toddler, you know, by 18 months of age, we say, we keep talking about that big bang of consciousness. You go from no sense of self to a person actually creating a sense of self. So that I think is also why there's a poor sense what others are thinking. A toddler barely knows what they are thinking. That's what they're working on. They're working on figuring out what they'll use the rest of their life, which is a sense of self. I see this happening all the time. I saw it when I was working with young families and a parent would see that their 20-month-old or 18-month-old would whack the baby on the head. And people would say, this is terrible. You have to stop it. You have to punish them. You have to put them in a timeout. 
as opposed to understanding this overwhelming feeling and that that child doesn't have the words, as you pointed out, Dr. Wendy, the child doesn't have the words to say, hey, I really feel displaced here. (laughs) Why are you spending so much time with this baby? They have no other way of explaining or exploring these feelings. And it comes out often as something that seems very aggressive. I've heard parents say, well, they're only hitting the baby because there must be hitting going on in that house. And that's just so not true. Children are going to hit out because they have such limited means of showing how they're feeling. One of our main goals is to help parents take a step back and think about the way that they can use their words and their own self-regulation to help a child move away from an aggressive action to an action that will allow that child to begin to regulate their emotions and to understand the most important people in my life, my mother and my father, understand that I'm having a hard time and they're here to support and help me. So Susan, I don't know the answer to this, and this is a good thing for us to talk about, is how does the parent react and at different ages? So your child hits at age 18 months, they don't really know it's wrong. So you have to show them, kind of redirect them and then and then give them love and praise. But then in the older age, you made me think about this, you know, a two-year-old will tell a white lie, tell a lie, a straight up lie. No, I didn't take her toy. No, I didn't hit her. But they don't necessarily know that lying is wrong yet. And I think that's right. on the same spectrum. So, and I don't really know what the answer is, but what do you tell parents about? Like specifically, what do they do? I love the one without the lie. That's one of my favorite ones because I think that until children really develop a true conscience, which comes between five and seven years of age, when they really understand that there's a moral dilemma there, do you tell a lie or not? So you've got a four-year-old and the vase is broken and they clearly just drop the vase and say, I didn't do it. So I say to parents, instead of catching your child in that lie, which they do, they say, did you do that? Well, the child, of course, is going to say, no, I didn't do it. I'll say to them, you know something? I hear what you're saying. I bet you really wish that you had been more careful with the vase and that you didn't break it. But it's broken. So now we have something to do. And that could be cleaning up. There's always some way to make an amend, even if it's as simple as drawing an I'm sorry picture if they broke something of somebody else's or to mom or dad. Certainly cleaning up and taking care of whatever occurred if it was something that was broken. Well, that brings up another point. And that is the concept of I'm sorry. And something I always tell people is you can't make your child say I'm sorry because then it's like a free pass, like sorry, done. Yes. So I tell I tell them, well, you can have their child check in, you know, go see the other kid and, and just say, I yes. took your toy. Uh, how do you feel? <laughs> I always say make amends. You are so right. I have seen so many children say, well, I said I'm sorry. You're right. Exactly the words I use. It's not a free pass. Like to get to the concept of the toddler goggles, I would love it if I'm late for work, if I was like, sorry, and I get like, okay, no one cares anymore. Or like, I didn't make dinner tonight, guys. Sorry. Repass. Done. That'd be awesome. I always have children make amends. So I'll give you an example from a preschool class. So let's say somebody gets hit and you say, oh, I see Patty is crying. You hit her and that hurt. You made her sad when you hit. Now we need to do something about that. And I would teach my teachers to help that child say, what could they do to make an amend? And sometimes the child who was hit will be very specific about what they need to make an amend. The child will say, I'm I'm sorry. And they'll say, that's not good enough. And the kid would have to go through like getting a washcloth or writing a note. And eventually though, I have never seen it when it hasn't worked out that the child that was the recipient of 
of, of an aggressive um, action doesn't eventually come around and say, okay, it's okay. And they become friends so that the child knows that they're not a victim. And the child who did the action realizes they just can't get away with saying, I'm sorry. Their action caused a reaction in somebody else. At the beginning, adults have to be quite involved in this interaction. But I absolutely tell you that if parents stick with this, you would be so amazed at how quickly children figure out how to do this on their own, that they take it on their own. And that's exactly what our goal is. Our goal is for that child to integrate that sense that they have some responsibility for their action. You know, this discussion brings up a a strange association, which is a parent pushing their child to say, I'm sorry, and the usual use of the concept of timeout. In both instances, the parent feels they've got a solution they can impose on the child that will fix the situation. And this conversation, which I really loved about I'm sorry, highlights that when the parent comes to the child and forces them to say I'm sorry, there's a few issues there. One is that there's a moral problem here as opposed to a learning problem. We often feel as though when you know one of our kids hits someone, we have to teach them good and bad and not to be a bad person, right? Whereas this discussion we just had suggests we're not pinning anyone as good or bad. We're just helping people understand a better way to be. And, and most critically, instead of thinking if we push our child to say, I'm sorry, that the whole situation's solved, we instead are in this conversation talking about asking the toddler to take over the situation and make amends. They did something that disrupted the world that hurt somebody. They do need to make amends, but repair is different than good and bad. This has wide ranging implications too. And what you're saying is that parents need to intervene less. So under age 12 months, parents really need to do a lot for their kids. After that, the kid starts to become independent. And there was a great study where a toy was given to a child. And in one scenario, the parents showed the child, demonstrated how you can put blocks in this toy and it has different functions. In a separate group, the parents just handed them the toy. So in the first group where the kids were given the demonstration, they started by doing the scientific method, basically. They would trade out blocks to see what each function on the toy was. In the second group, the kids played with the toy much, much longer than in the group where the parents demonstrated how to use it. And the kids found secret functions of the toy. So the implication here is that if you give your child an opportunity and then step back, just let them explore. Do not over-direct them. Even in social situations, you need to give them a little bit of space because they are going to grow faster and better in their development. You know, it's a funny thing. Talk about the toddler's brain, obviously not as developed as an adult. They're just learning what I is, what their responsibilities are. And in the same breath, we're saying, give them more space to work. Mm -hmm. We're saying they're not very good at it, but turns out strangely enough, shouldn't it come as a surprise to anyone? You only really learn if you get a chance to practice. If the teacher, the parent doesn't give the student, the toddler, a chance to explore, make mistakes, make repairs, make amends, then there's no learning. Yeah. Experts say the difference between an expert and a novice is that the expert has failed many more times. (laughs) I love that. Yeah, I have heard that. Yeah, that's great. (laughs) I love that. So um, this gets us really into talking about toddlers and empathy. We've touched on it throughout our discussion, but maybe a little more coming back to this thing where your one and a half, two, two and a half year old looks like they're being mean. And so why don't they feel empathy? We talked about a little, but maybe we can go in a little more depth on that question. 
You know, I don't know as much probably as Susan and you do about the specific development of empathy, but what it does bring to mind is that kids don't necessarily know the point of view of another person. So say they're at a play date, mom comes inside to pick up the toddler, the two-year-old, three-year-old, and dad's waiting in the car. Mom feels bad that dad's waiting in the car. The kid does not care. Not going to feel bad that dad's waiting in the car. So the mechanics behind that is that you have to start to teach them like, oh, there's another human involved here. And I don't know how necessarily you make that transition, except to just as a parent, just point it out. My own sense is that the awareness of another person isn't taught as much as developed. Mm -hmm. The software hasn't developed yet. And so a one and a half year old can't possibly have the same sense of other people's needs as a 10 year old just can't. And, and yeah, we expect, we sort of yeah. expect them, right? You know, we sort of expect And the child who does is that highly sensitive child that can be really tough to deal with, actually. Those mm-hmm. kids who are very, very empathetic. They probably have more mirror neurons than other humans. Mm-hmm. I think there probably is something genetic there. I agree. And I have something that maybe our listeners would be interested in. It's a very simple little experiment to see if your child is getting that theory of mind, if they can take another point of view. And it's quite simple to do. You take something like a Band-Aid box. Children recognize a Band-Aid box. And your child should be at least three and a half because theory of mind doesn't really come into really good focus till between three and a half and four and a half, sometimes even later. Take the Band-Aids out and instead put crayons in it and show them the Band-Aid box. Don't shake it and say, what's in here? And the child will say, Band-Aids. And then you'll open it up and you'll say, oh, look at this. Some children get mad at you (laughs) because you tricked them. But most of them will just laugh and they say, oh, you tricked me. There are crayons in the Band-Aid box. And then you'll say, let's see. What if we go ask daddy or another sibling, somebody who's out of the room, and we show them this exact same box. What do you think that they'll say is in there? The child who says they'll say there are crayons in there because that's what the child just experienced has not yet developed theory of mind. In other words, they can't imagine that somebody is going to have a different point of view. Now they know that there are crayons in that Band-Aid box and that's how they're going to see it. But if they say, ooh, they're going to say it's Band-Aids and we can trick them then you know that that child now can take the perspective of another human being. And I think that that might be helpful for parents to know that now their child is moving developmentally. And I think it is a brain development thing that they just are now able to see things a bit differently. It's not like they've got an adult point of view, but they're certainly well on their way. Maybe people would like to try that. It's a pretty non-invasive little experiment. (laughs) That is fascinating. And, you know, I just want to say a word about theory of mind, which is a phrase, I mean, it's a concept I think is essential to being human, but I really dislike the phrase because I don't think it says what it is very well. What it really refers to is your ability or my ability to try to guess what someone else is actually thinking. It's a step beyond empathy. There's plenty of actually uh, very young children, even before toddlerhood and early in childhood, who seem to respond if another child's crying, let's say. Mm -hmm. I think that's a form of early empathy for sure, but it's not theory of mind. That child's not actually developing a pretty good guess about exactly what the other person's thinking and feeling. That's what we mean by theory of mind. You might see someone caring about what someone else is thinking, but they're not actually developing an idea of what someone else is really thinking and feeling until three and a half or later. Well, there are a number of things that kids need to develop or have to develop before they get to that stage. And so we're talking about that frustrating age of 18 months to two and a half, three. And one of the big things there is impulse control. You know, there's that famous experiment. If you leave a two-year-old in a room and give them a cookie or a marshmallow and you leave the room and you say, I'm going to leave the room. If you don't eat it and I come back, I will give you a second one. You can have both. 
So a two-year-old, they just sit in the room and they eat the marshmallow. They have no <laughs> ability to stop themselves. A three-year-old, a four-year-old, you leave them in that room with a marshmallow and you watch them on a camera. They're sitting on their hands. They're closing their eyes. They're covering their eyes, doing everything they can to not eat the marshmallow. So there's a big, big shift that happens there. So your two-year-old, mm-hmm. you cannot leave them with temptations. I know I told this story before where I left a wrapped gift for another child for a birthday party in my living room. And I told my daughter, this is for your friend. Don't open it. And she opened it. Of course she opened it. You know, like why? She was two. Why would she not open it? So don't leave temptations for your children. Don't leave a box of chocolates out and say, don't have it. Put it away. See, that's the unrealistic expectations. I really hear this and I see it in parents, but I think that parents of young children are being influenced by older people who have forgotten how difficult and how irrational in some respects that this toddler stage is. And they'll say they shouldn't be doing that, but they should be doing it. Because just as you say, what else would your two-year-old daughter do but open a present that was not meant for her? And the same thing happens when parents or grandparents criticize a parent for giving in to a child in certain situations. So say your two-year-old asks for a cup of milk and you give her a cup of milk in a pink cup. And that is not what she had in mind. She wanted the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles cup. And that is not what you gave her. And then she freaks out. When you figure out which cup she wants, just switch it out. You're not giving in to your child. You just didn't understand what they want because they didn't have the language. And so an older adult might criticize you. Don't give in to your child. But you need to understand where the child's coming from. You you mentioned toddler glasses before. And be curious, Dr. Wendy, if you could share with us some of your approaches uh, to those tools. Yeah, I like to call it toddler goggles because it sounds cool. And you can remember, oh yeah, my toddler is freaking out. Wait, hold on. I'm not going to judge yet. I'm going to put on my toddler goggles and look at the world from their perspective, right? I mean, just imagine the world of the toddler, right? They like to jump on the bed. They like to run. They like to stand on their head. These are not things that adults do. So I talked about giving them a toy and letting them explore. I love that. Just back off. Just remember to back off. One of the other really important things for toddlers This is like key concept. You guys are going to just scream when I say this and agree. They need a lot of attention. All they want is your attention. They want, 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 want attention. And if you don't give them positive attention, that's when they're going to give you negative attention. They're going to annoy the heck out of you if they're not getting enough attention. So there is nothing wrong with praising your kids for specific things they do all day long. Catch them being good constantly. That is going to be, I think, the key to getting the best behavior out of your children. So imagine you want to give your friend a phone call. As soon as you get on the phone, your toddler's just all over you, just being really annoying. It's because you're not giving them attention. So you have to anticipate this, give them a ton of attention beforehand, even hugs and kisses while you're on the phone, and they are not going to be slamming doors and climbing on the cabinets and pulling all the toys out and annoying you. I don't know. What do you think? I am 100% you're right. I am screaming up and down and saying anticipation is the key. One of the things that I tell parents when they bring home a new baby, this is one of my very favorite little parent hacks, or you might call it. When you sit down to nurse the baby or give the baby the bottle, I can guarantee you that is when your toddler is going to need everything under the sun. They're going to need to use the potty. They're going to need a drink. They're, they're starving. Something is wrong. So in anticipation, when you know you're going to sit down with the baby, I have parents make up a little nursing bag, you can call it. And inside, there might be like a sippy cup of water or a snack that's very neat, a coloring book, you know, something that isn't too messy, you know, 
a little toy, like an Etch-a-Sketch. You can trade the toys out so that you can say, it's sometimes hard when mommy sits down and has to hold the baby and the baby takes a long time to eat. But here is something for you. You can sit right next to me and we can look at these things together. And I will tell you that it doesn't take away all the feelings, but a child now knows my mommy's also or my daddy's also thinking about me, not just about the baby. So I do think that there's nothing like anticipation. You know what's going to happen because after you've had a toddler, you know what are those situations that are going to cause the child to climb all over you and demand attention. And boy, those telephone calls, I think defeating the baby in telephone calls, those are two great big red hot buttons for toddlers. It's like a red cape in a bullfight. You know, as we're talking about it, it occurs to me that a lot of what we're talking about is asking the adults in the room, the, the parents, to use their ability to know what someone else is thinking, to use their theory of mind for their toddler. And your toddler goggles, Dr. Wendy, I think are just the right tool to do that. Yeah. Every time you're frustrated with your toddler, just take a second and put on their perspective. And you're like, oh gosh, no, I have to not be angry at them. (laughs) They have no idea. You know, this reminds me, it's really funny from a very different perspective. You know, early in my career, I worked in the emergency department and uh, late night, often I would get kids coming in after age eight or nine months and parents thought they were having seizures because they were doing repetitive movements. So like one uh, nine month old kept sticking out his tongue and another one was making this weird head movement. And what I discovered is that kids this age, they make a funny movement and their parents get shocked or laugh at it. And then they just keep doing it over and over again. It's not a seizure. I just, I just can never stop thinking about those little kids. The other thing that I think is so funny is same kind of age kids, they want to read the same book over again. And parents get insane. Like, I cannot read this book one more time. And I know why kids do that. There's a number of reasons. One is if they hear the same word over and over again in the same story, they learn the language better. The other thing is that it it enhances their ego. When you turn the page and the dog drinks the water and you knew the dog was going to take the water, you are awesome. I knew that was going to happen. That feels real good to a toddler. So just read the same book over and over again because it has great benefits. Yeah, that ability to predict when you're reading a book, the brilliance of watching your toddler develop the powers of prediction, of understanding how to understand the world. That's such a powerful technique. I really love that. So I'm really glad that we had a chance to have you as our guest, Dr. Uh, Wendy, and pull back the curtain and ponder the uh, amazing properties of our toddler's mind, really an emerging mind. You come out of infancy and you have all these new powers and you're learning how to use them. So I'm glad we had a chance to take a moment and really think carefully about that and really appreciate your experience, expertise, uh, Dr. Wendy. Thank you for joining us. Yes. Thank you so much. Oh, so happy to have joined you guys. Thank you so much. And thanks for the work you do on this podcast. So welcome. And, you know, as we part, we'll just say uh, that there's something very unique and special about your toddler's mind. The more you know about it, the better you can parent it. So until next time, take care. Take care. Bye-bye. Thanks again for listening to the Parent Talk podcast. You can find back episodes and send us your parenting questions at parenttalkpodcast.com. And don't forget to visit our founding sponsor, Naturepedic, at naturepedic.com.